I don't know if there's more um, vital or critical conversation that we can have as a church than how to connect to each other. And it might seem counterintuitive, right? Because you come to this place, a space where you're supposed to connect to God and people are supposed to get your entire focus on you connecting to God and that somehow we're talking about the critical importance of connecting to each other, right? And we're talking about connecting the dots, humans connecting to humans. And just so you know, this isn't a conversation that we initiated here at Hope. It's actually a conversation that was initiated by God himself. He wants to connect the dots. He wants people to connect to people. As a matter of fact, he created the whole world. He created humanity. He created a man. And he said, it's not good that that man be alone. Everything else is good. Everything else is great. But just me and Adam aren't enough. We're going to create Eve. We're going to pull Eve right out of his side. And it's actually better that you connect to people than just connecting to God. Isn't that insane? Isn't that wild? That God said, I'm not enough for you? That you actually need someone that's like you, someone that you connect to, someone that's totally different than you, but exactly like you. And we were connected, connecting the two dots. Because God created us for a relationship. He really did. Not only to himself, but to each other, for each other. And everything that we're unwrapping in the series is really us trying to get back to how God designed us for each other. Sometimes it seems that the most difficult things in this world are things that should come so naturally and be so easy and so smooth. It shouldn't be hard to be human, should it? It shouldn't be hard to be human, should it? We should like come naturally. We should get up and like as natural as breathing, just be human, connecting to humans, connecting with each other should be like the simplest and most organic thing we do on the planet. How is it possible that we could be created for each other and feel so disconnected from each other? We have more tools than ever before in all of human history built around connection and connectivity. And yet the space between from Dave Matthews' band, right? The space between all this lies, you know, it's crazy. It's getting bigger and bigger. The more connected and the more easy access we have, the bigger the space used to, seems to get, right? And as a disconnection is really a reflection of human disconnection of our disconnection with God as a culture. If we can't connect, we, we definitely can't connect to God. And today, I want to talk about what I'm convinced is the most critical attribute in making the deepest human connections. So we're going to start this series with the most critical thing, the most important thing. If you're ever going to make a human connection on the planet, and ironically, it's probably something that you were never taught. It's probably not something that you were ever told to emphasize in your life. When you were being raised to be a successful humanoid, you were probably focused on different things from your parents, whether it was your education or your talents or your skill sets or maybe working with people or talking to people or a high level of intelligence that you have. Whatever you have, you probably were never told that if you achieve everything in life but lack this one thing, you will come to the end of your life feeling so disconnected, empty, and all that success and all that fame and all that power, all that prestige, all the things that you've accumulated will be consumed by the vacuum of your soul because you've lacked empathy. That's right. Empathy. How many were ever trained as a kid how to be empathetic to your friends? Has anybody ever really developed with a personal counselor like, man, you just need to learn the art of empathy. If you want to be successful in business, if you want to be successful in life, if you want great relationships, let's study empathy, right? But I'm convinced empathy is the most important characteristic in having human connection on the planet. And we talk about empathy, there are so many words that kind of exist in that universe. We think sympathy is the same thing. It's not. Pity might be close. Compassion or mercy, and in some ways, it's kind of odd to talk about empathy. And then to connect it to God, even that's even weirder, because most of us do not think of God as being empathetic. Maybe some of you who never come to church or never around church people, you think God is pathetic, but we never really connect God to being empathetic, right? And I think sometimes there's these places in our lives where we probably felt compassion for someone, maybe we felt sympathy for someone, or maybe even pity on somebody. But empathy is the unique ability to step into someone else's reality and experience our world from their space, from their reality. Empathy is the ability to walk in someone else's shoes, or maybe even more important than that or more clear than that, to step inside their feet which kind of gets weird, right? 
If you're taking notes today, for those of you in the room, you, you can connect the dots on your note sheet. Just do it really quick because you're going to get the exact point I'm trying to make. It's like stepping into the feet of the person you're trying to empathize with. Because one of the great challenges is that we spend most of our lives trying to be understood by other people. In fact, I think many of us, one of the great struggles of our lives is that we feel that nobody ever really gets us as a person. That no one really understands us. Our kids don't understand us. Our spouse doesn't understand us. The people at work don't seem to understand us. Our pastor definitely doesn't understand us. Like nobody understands what it's like to be me. And no one really knows what you're going through and what you're feeling about what you're going through. And at the same time as a culture, we become and remain completely unaware of how incapable we have become of understanding someone else. Understanding what they're going through and feeling what they're feeling. If empathy from a psychological perspective is the ability to vicariously step into someone else's reality, then the person who should understand us the least in this world is God. And many times people think of God as not empathetic, kind of just pathetic, because he does not live within our reality. He's outside of our reality. He's outside of time and space. And in fact, we'd have to say, God, you don't get me. You are so big and I am so not like you. You don't understand me. You don't feel what I feel. You don't know what I'm going through because you've never been through this, God. God, the only way you could ever be empathetic toward me is if you decided to give up your divinity and become a human yourself. Hey, there's an idea, right? You would never understand what it'd be like to be a human because you've always been just so godish. And the only way you could understand what it's like to be me is to give up your divinity and put on skin and bones and flesh and step into a pair of feet. Which maybe explains why God did what he did. Why God is who he is. Why God said, I have to go down and be among them. I have to be with them. I have to be one of them. And he gave, God himself gave up his divinity to become a little baby and put on a human carcass that contained him. And he was 100% man and 100% God, but he gave up all his rights to his divinity to walk the planet, to be one of you and one of me, 100% human. Isn't that insane? And maybe it's because God wanted to have real empathy. The thing that makes for the strongest human connection on the planet. The thing that connects people to people and people to God. Empathy, empathy, empathy. The shortest verse in the scriptures may be the most powerful verse in all the Bible. They are two words that unlock the essence of who God is and move us towards the essence that reflects who God is. In John 11, the context is that John was asked, or Jesus was asked to come help his friend Lazarus, who was dying. And he was like, come save him, come heal him, come deliver him. They came to say, him, say to him, hey, Jesus, Lazarus, your friend, is dying. They knew Jesus cared about him. They knew Jesus was his friend. And then Jesus didn't hurry. He spent a couple of days doing other things where he was. And while Jesus was being detained for no apparent reason, with no sense of urgency, his friend Lazarus died. So when Jesus finally comes three days later, Again, in Jewish tradition, if you were alive and then dead for one day, there's still a chance you could come back from the dead. If you're alive and then dead for two days, there's still a chance. But after three days, they wrapped you up and threw you in a tomb because it was like for dead, for dead, for dead, sure, for sure, for sure, for dead, dead, right? Three days dead is like really dead. And nobody's going to pray on you. Nobody's going to pray on you. Nobody's going to pray for you. Nobody's going to mess with you. Nobody's going to believe God for a miracle anymore because dead is dead is dead after three days. And Jesus waits three days, he's late, and Lazarus' sister, uh, Mary and Martha, are devastated. And they're really ticked off at Jesus. Everybody is mourning and weeping, and then Jesus shows up, because if anybody could save him and anybody could help him, it's the miracle-working, amazing man who feeds people out of nothing. It's Jesus. Jesus could save Lazarus from the dead. But have you ever felt like God just didn't show up on time for you? Or he didn't just show up at all. Why? Because he didn't care at all for me. He didn't care enough to get there. He didn't understand what I was going through. So he didn't know how to show up in your life. So maybe you show up for the pastor. Maybe you show up for this really spiritual person. Maybe God shows up for you and you. But he never shows up for me. 
You ever feel like that? Jesus shows up a little bit late. Oh yeah, now you want to come, Jesus. And I'm sure you have some great lesson for us all to learn. Now you want to talk to me about my pain. Now you want to talk to me about my faith or whatever mustard seed I have to conjure up in my heart to still believe. And I don't need a teaching moment, Jesus. I don't need you to tell me what I need to know in this moment. I just need to know why didn't you show up? And why'd you let your friend and my brother Lazarus die? Jesus shows up in the moment. In John eleven thirty five, 35, it says these two words, Jesus wept. Jesus cried. These two words are an expression of who God is and the most violating words you could ever hear about the reality of God Almighty. And you and I might not understand the context of that, but we need to realize that thousands of years ago, this understanding of who God was and who God is came out of an entire different universe of thoughts. I mean, up until this point, you have Greek mythology, you have Norse mythology, you have Roman mythology, very prevalent, and you have Egyptian mythology. And you have all these stories of all these different gods that live apart from us and aside from us. Actually, they're way far above us. And if they're ever going to get engaged with us, if we're ever going to talk to the gods or have pity from the gods or the gods are going to have mercy on us, it's just because we are chess pieces in a divine game of chance. And they used to pray things like, let the gods be with us. Let the gods be with us. And if a god interacts with us in a positive way, well, that god just had pity on us. But God could never have genuine compassion for one of us. And certainly, no god could ever have empathy for us because no god had ever become human. Because to become human would stop being God. Would mean to be stop being God. So no God has ever become a human up until this point. So now you have this story, this moment, where God himself steps into human history, gives up his divinity, and yet he takes on flesh and blood and walks among us, the creator with his creation. And in the middle of this moment of darkness and despair and pain and sorrow and loss and suffering, it simply says, God cried. Jesus wept. Divinity shed tears. That's crazy. He was not cold. He was not aloof. He was not distant. He was not an observer of the human experience. He wasn't weeping because he lost something. God Almighty wasn't weeping because he felt bad that he missed his window and he missed his moment. I should have been here. You're all right. I really blew it on this one. He wasn't weeping over this permanent decision of death. He wasn't weeping over it that he had just lost a friend. I mean, do you think for a moment Jesus was confused about his power in this moment over death? Do you think Jesus was like, for any moment, like defeated, thinking, man, there's no way I could ever reverse this situation? See, Jesus didn't weep because of what he was feeling. He wept because he felt what they were feeling. Jesus didn't weep because of what he couldn't do. He wept because he felt what we were feeling when we couldn't do anything. And what I think is so odd is that so often we project on God who we actually are and say God must be like that. We act as if God lacks empathy and God's all about the wrath. Maybe you came from that church. And God's all about the judgment and the condemnation and the anger and teaching you a lesson and getting even. And God's just trying to hold us accountable for who we're not and how human we are. Because if God doesn't keep us accountable for being human and missing the mark, then who will? <laughs> and I think we've gotten a little confused because that's what we do to each other. We judge each other. But that's never what God does to us. He is not a God trying to keep it even and tell us and show us how evil and how wrong and how stupid we are all the time to be accountable to our humanity. That's what we would do. So we project that on God and this experience that we have where over and over again, we think that no one really understands us and we project that on God and say, well, then there's no way that God could understand me. I mean, after all, if the people who've been closest to me in my life don't really understand who I am, how in the world could God, who is so distant and so big, ever really understand me as a person? And see, empathy is something that we take from God and we never project on God. It's something that we 
kind of say God's not empathetic. If he were, he'd be more pathetic. God's actually just better than all of us. And that's why he doesn't cry when we're crying. You know what I'm saying? See, empathy is at a premium in our culture. There's been a huge loss of empathy for others. And just look around. There's been an extremely strong focus on demanding everyone in the world understand what it's like to be you. With your body weight and your skin color and your background and your socioeconomic status. And everybody needs to understand what it's like to be me and your gender. And it's, it's not usually described as a loss of empathy. It's usually described as like an emergence of narcissism. <laughs> That's probably a word that you're familiar with. In fact, it's a common language of narcissism has become common language of our culture. We all understand what it means to be a narcissist. We see it on every television show. We see it in everyday real life. And far too often, we are it ourselves, narcissists. Now you might be saying, well, hold on a minute, Pastor. Wait, just pump the brakes for a second. I'm not a narcissist. Okay, or maybe you're thinking, I am, but nobody knows because they're all too dumb to realize that I'm a narcissist. They're not smart enough to realize that I think I'm a little better than them. Well, I just want to unwrap this for a minute because you might be wondering if the opposite of empathy is narcissism, what exactly is narcissism? Well, the whole concept of narcissism comes from a Greek story of a guy named Narcissus. And he was the most attractive warrior in the world, strong and brave and handsome. And when people fell in love with him, he never felt like their beauty could quite match his beauty. And he was an admirer of beauty. Of course he was. He was beautiful. He held beauty at such a high regard because he was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen himself. And the story of Narcissus is that he was so sad because he could never find anybody, any beauty worthy of himself. And one day he's walking by a pond and he saw it. The most beautiful creature he'd ever laid his eyes on, he'd ever seen. So he had to have this creature. So he dove into the pond and he drowned to death because what he had seen was a reflection of himself. And it was just so beautiful. And some of you are not familiar with that Greek story, but you are familiar with drowning in an image of yourself. I think our whole culture is very familiar with drowning in images of themselves. Look at your socials and look at the foot that you portray forward in the best light that you portray your life. I mean, so many people have so many thoughts and so much imagery of self. Wouldn't you agree? More than any time in human history, every single person in our culture is in jeopardy of being a narcissist. See, we live in an era where we become culturally numb to drowning in self-love. We just think it's normal. You're supposed to love yourself the most. Of course you're supposed to be the best. Of course you're the best. You don't just think you're the best. You are the best. You're the best, the best, best, best. See, no one, <laughs> one of the ways you can realize that you're a narcissist is that the more narcissistic you are, the less empathy you have for others. It's one of the best ways of evaluating whether you actually struggle with being a narcissist. Do you lack empathy for other people? Do you ever vicariously step into another person's reality? Now, here's the thing that's kind of confusing, you know? At first glance, you might think, well, people who are highly narcissistic don't really feel deeply. They're shallow people who just are all about themselves. But that would be a mistake. In fact, they have such deep feelings, they expect everyone to understand the depth of their beauty and their feelings. And a narcissist, they feel deeply, they just don't feel deeply for others. You may feel deeply for yourself or even your spouse or your spawn, which is simply an extension and an expression of yourself. And you will protect your wife and you will protect your husband. You feel deeply for your kids. You're like, don't talk about my babies that way. You have lots of love for self. And it's really important for you that other people understand you and your feelings, your wife's feelings, your husband's feelings, and your kids' feelings. It's really important for other people to honor and respect your feelings. It's really important for other people to see your feelings as facts. Because if you feel it, it must be truth, which is really difficult. It makes it really hard to have a conversation with a narcissist. Have you ever tried? Because whether they're, whatever they're feeling is their view of reality, and it's not just reality for them, it's the facts about the way it is. And when you sit down with someone and you go, well, I know that's how you feel about this thing and this thing and this thing. They jump back at you and say, these are not my feelings. These are facts. Follow the facts. Follow the, you know, just throw the facts at it. These are not the way I feel. They're not the feelings. They're the facts. They're the facts. They're the facts. They're like, why are you so 
adamant about the facts because I'm really passionate about facts. You know, and why are you so intense? I'm, I really love for everybody to know the facts. And one of the peculiar things about a narcissist is they love the truth as long as they're the ones telling it. But anything that disagrees with their truth narrative cannot be truth. And they hate the truth. Are you one of those people that just got to tell people the truth? I know people that love Jesus. They're just like, we got to tell the world like it is. We got to get them to get the truth. And we slap the truth of God's word on our truth. And these two truths are together. And we cannot separate our truth versus God's truth. And we're like, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And they just come, you need to know the truth. The truth will set you free. And they just keep ruining everybody's life with the truth. You ever realize how ineffective that is? I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell everybody the truth. Yeah, the world needs to know because your opinion is the truth that the world needs. And the way you interpret it is the truth that the world needs. And the way you see it is the truth that the world needs. So it's really painful for you to withhold your opinion if you are a narcissist. Because the world's not going to get better without knowing your opinion. And what's interesting is when you're a narcissist, you have to give your opinion, but you cannot embrace someone else's. So anything that doesn't line up with the truth that you bought so hard and you were taught so hard, man, you love being truthful and telling people what they need to hear. You love being straight up. I'm going to speak my truth. But the moment somebody speaks their truth to you, you fall apart. I'm offended. That is illegal. That is improper. That is, makes me angry. I am so mad. I became hurt because your truth is just your opinion, but my truth is fact. How dare they talk to me like that? Don't they know I'm the only one that's allowed to talk to people like that? And a part of the challenge of narcissism is that the whole universe revolves around you and your opinion and your perspective and your truth. That's why I love Hope Church, because we don't assume that you should believe what we believe. That's why I love Hope Church and people of hope, because we do not judge you for having a different opinion. It's okay. If I knew the God that you know, I would think different things too. If I had the reality and the background and the history, maybe I could empathize and say, what would it be like to come to this revelation of what life is if my history was so different or jacked up or abusive or hurt or harmful? You know, what would it be like to not know what I know or to not have what I have? And it makes me understanding, not so demanding. Makes me feel like, man, my truth is not what everybody needs to hear. Actually, they need to hear his truth, but wait, without my slant, but wait, in their time, but wait, in a way that actually is helpful to them, but wait, not me shoving it down their throat. Like, I want to help people, but it's not because of my opinions and my facts and my worldview and my perspective that makes me right. It's because of a person that I've discovered hope in named Jesus. It's not about my positions. It's not even about my principles. It's about a person. He's the one who can actually change people. He's the one who can actually take somebody from this lens to this lens, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from a perspective of self to a perspective of selfless, others more valuable than just me. And then you wonder, you know, part of the challenge of being a narcissist is that the whole universe revolves around you, your truth, your thoughts, and then you wonder why the universe doesn't come near to you and you lack connection in your life. It's because you're like the sun and anybody who gets too close gets burned to a crisp and you push every connection away from you and you are so right, but you are so empty. And you are so right, but you are so alone. And together, you do not become a greater consolation, Okay. One of the interesting characteristics of a narcissist, as opposed to empathy, is that when you're a narcissist, just bear with me, you become less generous. I don't see the connection, Pastor. Why are you talking to me about my giving and my generosity? Well, if you increase your generosity, you will decrease your narcissism. I know that for sure. Because when you're narcissistic, you cannot think of a better cause than you and your cause. So why would I give to something else when I'm the most important cause in the world? No, now you believe that other people should give to the cause of you, but you don't think you should give to the cause of other people. And the challenge of this mindset is that says, well, you know, I can't give because I just can't trust those people. I can't give because I don't trust those organizations. I don't give. I would give, but I don't trust that leadership. The problem is 
you don't believe that anyone is more trustworthy than you at your core. So I'll throw a few here and a few there. Nothing that's going to cost me anything because I, I just know that nobody's more trustworthy than me. <laughs> no one could ever use money better than you could. No one could ever be more noble with finance than you could. And since you can't trust, you hoard rather than give. I'm describing narcissists. So I don't understand why I can't connect to people. Well, I'd like to just take a moment of self-reflection and ask yourself this question. Have I taken on the internal structure of a narcissist? Have I taken on the internal lens of narcissism? Have you actually lost the most beautiful gift you could ever have, which is empathy? And I would be the first to admit, I have. I am, have a confession to make to a whole church and the whole world watching online. I am a narcissist. Are you a narcissist? I am a part of the most narcissistic culture, and I am one of the best narcissists I know. A few months ago, I came across a therapist explaining narcissism not being biological and not being genetic, but actually being environmental. They said, we raise our kids to become narcissists. It's like, all the dots are connecting for me, right? And so we have to take moral or social responsibility for the narcissists that we're creating in society. But at the same time, they said, if you see these tendencies, you need to deal with them when they're young, like before they're five years old, before they're five, six, and seven years old. Because if they become adults and they, if they become narcissists, it's irreversible. That's what the psychologists say. You can't ever undo it. You always have that lens. And when I heard that, I said, oh, that sounds just right for Jesus. This guy I know, this person I know, this God I know, irreversible, just right for Jesus. Impossible, just right for Jesus. I'm a narcissist, I'm hopeless, I'm impenetrable in my thoughts. That sounds just right for Jesus. The only person that can take me out of narcissism and into empathizing with other people. And today I want you to know that there is no structure in your life that is irreversible for God. There is nothing too far gone for God. There is no arena of your life or in your psychological makeup that cannot be transformed by the presence and the power of Jesus. But you have to want to change. You have to own it. The first step is admission. I am a narcissist. And you have to see empathy not as a weakness, but as a strength. Empathy not just for those emotional connected people to their feelings, you know, those really yellow people among us that really want everybody to get along and just listen, great listeners. No, no, for, for everyone, empathy is a reality that will change your life. You have to break away from this mindset that if I actually care about other people, I will make myself vulnerable and I will set myself up for disappointment and loss because every time I am vulnerable, every time I feel with somebody, it's never reciprocated and I always get the short end of that stick. And nobody feels with me. And so I give, 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 and then I get burned, 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 burned. And we have this idea that Actually, empathy is too much vulnerability, and it will destroy your life if you feel too much for others. You have to see the power. That's right, I said it. The power of stepping and being able to vicariously step into someone else's space and weep for them and care deeply for them. When is the last time you wept for someone else's pain? I got a question. Not for your pain. Not for your disappointment, not for your loss, not for your wounds, not for your history. When is the last time you wept over somebody else's history, somebody else's wounds, somebody else's loss? When was the last time that you were like Jesus and the two words that described you were, Nate wept? <laughs> it's so funny because it's never happened. Nate cried with me. Nate's a good listener. The, the people that drive me crazy, like one of my greatest attributes is I'm a great listener. You will never hear that about me. I'm a great fixer. I'm a fixer. I'm a problem solver. I'll tell you how to fix it. I'm not a great listener. I will solve six different problems before you tell me the one problem you have. You understand what I'm saying? When is the last time, like Jesus, somebody described you as Nate emotionally felt something with me? Not Nate saved the day. Not Nate, like, inspired the heck out of me in church. Inspired the hell right out of me, right? <laughs> Not like, Nate blew my mind. You know what I'm saying? No. Nate cried with me. Nate cared for me. Nate 
really listened to me and didn't fix the problem. You know why no one can say that? It's because I'm a narcissist. When's the last time? Okay, let me ask you. When's the last time somebody said, man, Tom, he wept with me. You know, Sally, she really felt that with me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's fascinating to me that right after that, the very next verse says this. They looked at Jesus. They saw him weeping. He didn't have to say a word to anybody. And they said, look how Jesus loved Lazarus. Look how he loved him. If you want to understand the power of empathy, it's love. We're talking about human connection. Most powerful human connecting thing. Empathy. The power of empathy is in L-O-V-E, baby. L's for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore. And love is all I can give to you. It's a spoiler for later. I'll just give to you. Love. L-O-V-E, baby, is the power of empathy. They looked at Jesus, and they just knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. But he didn't just love Lazarus. He also loved Mary his big sister, Martha, his other sister. He loved the people who were in pain over Lazarus and he stepped into their pain with them and he carried it for them and this is not where it ended for him. I like Jesus because when he empathizes, he doesn't leave people right there in their pain. I like Jesus because when he empathizes, he really feels it, but he doesn't stay there forever with them which is what I'm so scared of. If I actually feel something with somebody, they'll get a, a, a human connection to me that is actually codependency. And I'm like, man, stop making me your garbage can. I do not want to be a human trash can. I do not want to feel everything with you. I do not want to be a human codependent. So I'm afraid of codependencies. So I cut it off. How about you? I don't feel deeply because I don't want to create codependencies. Anybody like that? So I'll feel with you for a second, but then you got to get, you got to move on. Because we've got to fix this. He's about to raise from the dead. I'm going to solve the problem. Everybody's going to be like, Jesus inspired me. You know what I'm saying? Like, we moved forward. But that's not what Jesus' plan is. But it's also not where he left him. He didn't leave him dead in a grave of emotion. He did not leave them dead in their pain, in their suffering. He empathized. Whew. But he did it. He was empathetic in a non-pathetic way. It's odd to me that the days around the death of Jesus are called the Passion. It's a peculiar description, right? The Passion. Anybody ever seen it with Mel Gibson? He made this movie called The Passion like 20 years ago, yeah? The Passion of Christ. Anybody? Tough crowd today, I'm telling you. Nine o'clock was a lot more fun. Are you guys here with me? All right. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says this, I want to know Jesus. I want to know God in the power of his resurrection. Woo! Raising from the dead. Come on, let's go, Lazarus and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, those two things are opposites, aren't they? <laughs> that word sufferings comes from the Greek word pathos or passions. Paul's actually saying, I want to have fellowship. I want to care about. I want to have communion. I want my soul to be overwhelmed by the pathos, the passions of Jesus. I want what he gives a damn about for me to give a damn about. I want what he cares about to be what I care about. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which literally translated means when you care about what God cares about, you are connecting to the wisest thing you could ever connect to on the planet, caring for what he cares about. He's like, I want to know his passions. I want to know his heart. I want to get after what he gets after. I want to cry over what he cries over. I want to carry a burden with Jesus that matters in life. So he calls the last days of his life, those who were closest to him, they called it the passion because those who wrote about it understood that you want to know what God cares about. You need to look at what he sacrificed everything for. And he cares about people. People matter to Jesus. People are his passion. Well, God's presence is my passion and presence is priority. If God's presence is, no, no, Jesus came to the planet. He said, my presence is not priority. I actually came to the planet to serve, not to be served. He said, you know what my priority is? People. People are my passion. People are what I'm going to lay it all down for. Humanity is what matters the most to me. If you want to know <laughs> what's inside of God's intention, 
Look at the action taken at the cross. He's not insecure being like, does everybody know that I'm God? Does everybody know that my presence is here? Does everybody know how powerful I am? Does everybody know how wonderful I am? He's not insecure like, oh my gosh, keep him first and foremost in everything because his presence, he's actually like, people matter the most. Get over me and help people. Well, I can never get over the awe and the wonder and the beauty of Jesus. That's great. That's wonderful. But do something with all of that powerful awe and wonder to serve what he cares about. Don't be so religious that you lose relationship with the people you're trying to reach. My God, save us from stupidity called Christianity that honors principles over people. For God so loved the world For God so loved his principles that he gave, no, to people, no. For God so loved his power that he gave his only, no. He said, God so loved people. The word world means all the people, all the different types of people, all the different backgrounds of people. The world means people. For God so loved people that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in Jesus would have everlasting life and never perish. That's his passion, people. If you want to know the intention of God, then look at the action taken at the cross of Jesus. Because God so hated the destructive power of sin over humanity, he was willing to die to destroy its power over us. He so loves humanity that he's willing to die so that we could live free again. Free from the law of sin and shame and death and bondage and destruction. He said, I've come to break that yoke. I've come to set the captives free. I came to the planet to seek and to save the lost. And if it's a good enough mission statement for Jesus, it's a good enough mission statement for Hope Church. I don't care if you call it shallow. I don't care if you call it nothing. I don't care if you think it's ridiculous. We are here to seek and save people. Number one priority, people are our passion. Well, don't lose the presence of God. If you are seeking people, connecting them to Jesus, you can never lose the heartbeat of heaven. I am telling you, people are what matters in heaven. People are what matter on earth. People are what God said, I'm going to sacrifice everything for. Oh my gosh. I know I'm arguing with Christians. I'm talking to you too, okay? So stay with me for a second. He's willing to die so that we can live free again. Aren't you glad? He put a priority on people, a passion for people. If you want to know what God cares about, just understand the sacrifice. Because you'll understand as a human being when you, you'll understand a human being when you know their passions. You're like, I don't get you. Why are you so loud? You don't know who I am because you don't understand my passion. And the problem is that if all your passions are self-indulgent, if everything about you is about you, then you'll spend your entire life walking among humans, but you'll never discover your humanity, you narcissist. And you'll wonder, why can't I connect to other people? And you'll spend the rest of your life trying to buy people, trying to own people, trying to manipulate and control people, because you don't believe they would choose to be with you if they really knew you. Because underneath it all, underneath all your socials, underneath all your imagery, underneath all these layers of narcissism that are expressed in arrogance and in self-indulgence is such a lack of self-esteem. The reason your profile looks like that is because you're insecure and you lack self-esteem. Fear that you're not going to be good enough if anybody actually knew you, if you were actually vulnerable, if you actually had a weak spot, that people will finally just see through you and they will see that you are not what you say you are. So then you spend your life trying to fix it, trying to keep it spinning, trying to make everybody happy. Because of that, you cannot risk intimacy and you choose to avoid empathy at all costs. Because actually feeling deeply with someone costs way too much. But I think the part of the dilemma with God is that often times the actions of God are interpretive to the motives of men. Again, a big old projection cycle. So we read the Bible and we go, well, how can God be so good when he does this? And how could he care if he does this? And we keep projecting our motives on God's actions. And then there are these people who think that God was actually like bipolar, you know? In the Old Testament, God was angry and wrathful. And now he went through therapy and he came back chill and zen like Jesus. And he has good vibes everywhere. And everybody got grace and mercy and compassion. And that's why I think it's important to hear who God really is and who he's always been. I always like to say God might not be who you think he is. He might not, church might not be what you think it is. You know, people might not be who you think they are. 
Imagine if you were not a narcissist and you didn't know everything. Imagine who God could be to you. Imagine what community could be to you. Imagine what other people in your world could actually help you with. That's why I think it's important to hear who God's been all along. Let's look at a Psalms in the Old Testament. Psalm 116.5, it says, The Lord has always been gracious. And he's super right. He's in right standing with himself. Our God is full of compassion. This is God before Jesus stepped a toe on the earth. This is God interpreted and explained by those who are closest to him. This is God expressed by those who are actually angry with God. That's right. People in the Old Testament were mad at God. You think you're the only person who ever got mad at God? His people, people that believed in him a little bit, they're like, man, we just can't stand you, God, because the Israelites got upset with God. And a lot of times, it seemed like God was harder on them than he was the other nations. You know what I'm saying, John? 11? Like, wait a minute, God. They worship false gods. You're not disciplining them for that. Look at what they're doing, God. Look at them. Why don't you go after them for their issues and their problems? And a lot of times, they want God to be mad at the world so he would just leave them alone. And they're a little narcissistic, like, we're not as bad as them. And yet we get all the negative attention. And you give us all the correction and all the direction. And I feel rejected by you, God. But God says, no, you need to understand. I discipline you because I love you. I'm speaking into your life because I believe in you. There's a high calling in Christ Jesus because I think you're valuable. You're worth it. I think you can do better than this. I actually believe in you. That's why I call you higher. Well, just lower the standard. You mean stop believing in your capacity? Just lower the standard. You mean stop acting like you're competent? Just lower the standard. Let me get away. Let something slide. You mean <laughs> allow you to lose in life? No, no, no. You have to understand I discipline you. I talk to you. I call you higher. Not because I hate you, because I love you. Like Anybody with a child should be under, able to understand that. The reason I call you higher is not because you're not good enough for me. It's because I believe in you more than I believe in her kids, for sure. Come on, Mom. See, I think of a, a lot of us want intimacy with God. We want a connection with God. But then we don't want God to be intimately involved in our lives. It's like, God... I want to be intimate with you, but don't get intimate. Don't, what was he talking about? Giving earlier? Get out, of my, get out of my wallet, man. Generosity? God, don't touch my intimate places. If God is truly empathetic, if he can vicariously step into our experience and see the world from our vantage point, which he does, even though he doesn't have to, then he's the one who understands your walk towards healing. He's the one who understands your journey towards deliverance. He's the God who understands your pathway to true freedom and success. He's the one who understands you more than you understand yourself. God is a God of compassion. He is full of compassion. If you don't understand the difference between compassion and empathy, what I would say is empathy is being able to step into other people's realities. Compassion is acting on your concern for those people. Compassion is your passion in action. Compassion is passion in action. You cannot say you're compassionate just because you feel something. That's called empathy. You can only say you're compassionate because you do something about what you feel. So sympathy might exist without action. What's sympathy? A third word, sympathy. But compassion always has action. Sympathy is like, I feel for you, but I don't do anything. Compassion is like, I feel for you, and I do something. Empathy is, I feel what you feel. And part of the reason we have a culture of hate is because we expect everybody to see the world from our vantage point. So all the football helmets on the NFL, it's a big Super Bowl coming up, but poor 49ers, they lost... You're going to see stop hate, stop hate, stop hate, stop hate. What is that? The reason we have a culture of hate is because we expect everybody to see from our worldview. Because we've lost the power of empathy. Thank you. I knew you were here with me. Empathy. Because we don't understand how important it is to see through others' reality and see the world from a space that is just insignificant to us. So we can't imagine, catch this, anybody who disagrees with us as being right. In fact, we can't even imagine anybody disagreeing with us and being good in our culture. If you disagree, you're not only wrong, you know, you're also bad. A narcissistic culture believes everyone who disagrees with them is innately bad and wrong. 
Not right and wrong, good and bad. You should be destroyed, maybe. I mean, canceled, we'd say. Cancel culture. You know what I'm saying? You're not just bad, you're wrong. You're not just wrong, you're bad. You're not just bad, you should never be able to talk again. If you're the kind of person who measures everyone else by how much they agree with your perspective and your perceptions and your opinions, then you may live your life so right, but you will live your life so alone and ineffective. Because most of the time, people do not need your opinion. They need your support. Most of the time, people do not need you to fix their problems. They need you to listen to their problems. They need you to know that you understand what they're going through. I like Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, because it really breaks down a a couple things for us. It says, friends, you must warn lazy people that they should work. If people are afraid, help them be brave. If people are weak, oh my gosh, take care of them. This last, last little phrase, be patient with everyone. Do you hear what the Bible's saying? Don't you just love your Bible? You're supposed to be like, no, I hate it. I thought this was Hope Church. You're allowed to say that. I hate what this is saying to me. Patient with everybody? Really? If people are weak, take care of them? Let's go back to the beginning. Friends, I want you to catch this. You must warn lazy people that they should work. I want to let that sink in because you may have not known that's in your Bible. (laughs) See, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people, they're just lazy people because they don't have jobs. Maybe you're a person without a job. and like, man, quit being lazy. Go, Go get a job. There's so many jobs out there. Get a job. And sometimes lazy people are mad at God because it doesn't meet their needs. And the miracle you're looking for is actually called employment. If you just went and got a job, you would have that miracle. You wouldn't need to beg for God to actually provide for you every month because you'd pay your own rent and be like, wow. But you know what the hardest thing in the world is? To be somebody who actually cares about someone and sees that they're lazy. And then you speak truth into their life with all the grace. And you say, guess what, buddy? You need to go get a job. Keep a job. But at the same time, everybody else is, not, is just pretending that they're not lazy. They're not their friends. That's not empathy. Do you hear what I'm saying? See, this empathy thing crosses over. So the person who actually cares more about them than they care about what the other person thinks of them is the one who becomes the bad guy when they actually empathize and say, if you had a job, you'd have the miracle of provision every month. Because it says, if you're lazy, tell them how to get a job. See, if you allow people to live at their lowest level, you will be loved by everyone and admired by no one. Everybody think, man, he's the nicest guy. He tells me it's fine to be lazy. He's wonderful. But you have zero impact on anybody's life. You help them 0% because you're a liar. And so he says, look, there are people in your life that are going to be lazy. This is in the Bible. They're going to struggle with laziness, and you have to speak into their life. This profoundly spiritual truth, get a job. But, same verse, not everyone's lazy. You cannot see everyone is lazy. Because how many guys know there's people who don't have jobs who are not lazy? Some people are disabled. Some people have other things going on. Some people are afraid. So he says if people are afraid, there's some people that are just afraid. Maybe they've not been working for two years because of different feelings. Maybe they're at home today, even right now, because they're afraid. They're not lazy, but they look lazy. They're actually just afraid. See, it's really hard to judge people if you don't empathize with them. You don't feel what they're feeling. See, some people are just afraid to take risks. Some people are afraid to apply. Some people are afraid to step out. Some people are afraid to fail. Some people are so afraid of people. So it says, if they're afraid, help them be brave they're lazy, tell them to get a job. If they're afraid, help them be brave. Stop worrying about what they think about you. Make your focus, making them better in life. So you're actually contributing to who they are. But then some people are just afraid. You don't treat an afraid person the way you treat a lazy person. That's tough. It's impossible without discernment and empathy. He said, instead, help them be brave. So you need to be their courage. You need to be their faith. You need to be believing in them even when they don't believe in themselves. 
See, so many people don't believe in so many things themselves, God, but I have enough belief for the both of us. I got enough faith for the both of us. I love the four men who came and they carried their paralytic friend who had no legs. And they carried him and they climbed up on a roof with their friend on a stretcher. Then they cut a hole in a stranger's roof. Then they lowered this guy down into the presence of Jesus because he said, when you can't carry yourself, we will carry you into the presence of Jesus and you will find healing and life to the fullest and strength. And they dropped their friend down and said, we'll carry you. We'll believe in you when you don't believe in yourself. When you can't, we will. And we'll carry you and we'll drop you and you'll get your legs healed. And you'll be saved of all your sins, which everybody got mad at Jesus for, right? Like, wow, you saved him of his sins and you healed his legs? So some people are just afraid. I'm afraid as a paralytic to try to walk up a hill and lower myself. I'd be afraid to climb on a roof, cut a hole in that roof. Wouldn't you be afraid? So, so he's not lazy. He's just afraid. But if you're with me, you can borrow my courage. And they'll go, wow, that wasn't as terrifying as I thought. I thought it was going to be crazy to ask her out, but it's, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Yeah, borrow some of my faith. If you don't believe in yourself, I'll, come on. But I'll believe in you for you. But how many know the difference between empathy? He goes on, he says, if people are weak. Now there's a third slice of a different kind of person. Not a lazy person, not a fearful person, but a weak person. Isn't weakness just weak? Not always. Some people are weak, so it says, take care of them. And in my mind, I think, create codependencies. But that's not what he's saying. Have you ever not been lazy and not been afraid? You've just been so beat up that you can't breathe? And you just have that moment, you need somebody to create a space for you to recover without trying to fix you, just let you breathe in that moment. But it looks lazy or afraid, but actually, it's not that you're lazy, it's not that you're afraid, you're just in a place in a season of weakness. A vulnerability, and you needed a moment to catch your breath. Then somebody came in, and they just took care of you. I don't know about you, but when I'm sick, I love it when people just take care of me. I feel so weak. Bring me the soup. Bring me the pills. Bring me the stuff. Let me sleep. Take care of all my responsibilities. You know what I'm saying? And every guy should be like, yes, honey, are you listening? That's normal. That's a normal thing. We like to be babied when we're broken, right? And in your weakness, you say, like, I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm not a loser. I'm not lazy. I'm just weak. And it's not just when you're sick. I mean, you can have seasons of weakness. How many know, unless you're empathizing and stepping vicariously into their experience, you can't help or add value to the place because you don't know which it is, lazy, afraid, or weak. The problem is, if you're a hammer, you see everyone as a nail. The reason I know this is because I'm a hammer and everyone in here is a nail. I got this. Bam! I can fix you. Well, bam! You need a little bit of encouragement. Wata! Right? I'm just a hammer. Everybody else is a nail. I understand this. It makes sense to me. There's one solution to every problem. Reprimand. You know, fix it. Let's solve the problem, right? And I'm going to speak to your life a truth that's going to change you. And it's like, I'll even back it up with some spirituality and the word of God. And you're like, bam, that, that, that hammer has some authority to it. And you're like, yeah, it does. Because I'm right and you're wrong. But, but it's not helpful, is it? And I've been realizing, you know, it's not really helpful to do what I do all the time. Narcissism doesn't help people. Empathizing does. The most effective I can be is when I stop treating everybody like nails because I'm a hammer and start to empathize. Write this down. The more effective I am is the more empathy I choose. You want to be effective in life? Choose empathy. Empathy actually helps people. Helps lazy people. Helps brave or fearful people. Helps weak people. Empathy helps people. And it's not just right, it's helpful. It's helpful. Anybody ever get sick of being right but not helping anything? This is good therapy for me. I feel like I'm getting a lot off my chest. <laughs> see, I'm always right, but I'm never helpful. Barely ever. You see what I'm saying? It's, I found that leading is not what you need to bring. Serving, leadership, it's all about what others need you to bring to them. Understanding what's in front of you before you fix it. 
before you tell it what to do, before you just make it happen for them. You know, it's just different when you understand that empathy equals effectiveness, not weakness. Empathy equals vulnerability, not danger. When you struggle with narcissism, you'll have an over-attention to your appearance, just more concerned of how good-looking or how talented you look or how people perceive you, your prestige. And that's why I love Colossians 3.12. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, don't clothe yourself in arrogance. Clothe yourself with compassion. Don't clothe yourself with other people's perception. Clothe yourself in kindness. You dress your own self in humility. You get dressed with gentleness and patience. It's a hard word to say. You get dressed. You dress yourself with patience. I'm telling you, if you put on compassion every day, if you clothe yourself in kindness every day, humility every day, gentleness every day, patience every day, well, if I do that, I'll be a punching bag for every person in the world. No, 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 no. That's the difference. That's what I'm talking about. Empathy changes the power of your effectiveness. You're not less effective. You're more effective. You're not weaker. You're stronger. It seems counterintuitive. I feel more. I get hurt more. No, I feel more. I'm effective more. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says it again. Be patient with everything, with everybody. Patience. Put on patience every day. When you're a narcissist, you're impatient with everybody. Well, I don't know if I'm a narcissist. Are you impatient? You're probably a narcissist. Because no one gets it as fast as you. Nobody processes as good as you. Nobody is as smart as you. You walk circles around everything. And it says, be patient with everybody. See, I know I'm a narcissist because if you bring a problem to me, I will solve six different problems without hearing the problem first. And I'll give you six different paths to success because I already know what you're about to say. I've heard this story before. Like, oh, that thought and then that thought. No, I just finish your sentences for you because I'm so much better than everybody else. You hear what I'm saying? God is, God is saying, wait, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Don't solve the problem. Listen. Seek understanding. Serve people. Help people. Maybe don't even tell them what to do at all. Just listen. Empathize with them. Be patient with everybody. What makes Jesus unique is that he actually is a story of empathy. God stood outside of us. He didn't need to step into our space. He didn't just have pity on us. He didn't just feel sympathy towards us. He didn't even just have compassion and action because he cared for us. He actually stepped into the space of us, the feet of us. He carried our burdens and our pain. He knows our sorrow. There's nothing about you that God has not known or experienced himself. There's nothing about you that God has not vicariously stepped into before you got here. And if you want a God to understand you, then Jesus is the only way you can go. Buddha will never understand you. He is something else. Uh, uh, you know, Muhammad will never understand you. If you want a God that understands you, it's only going to be through Jesus, the God who took on flesh and said, I lived it. And I am not a high priest that is out of touch. He says, I'm a high priest that's in touch with the feelings of your infirmities, which means the way you feel about what happened to you. Your feelings about what happened to you. Fact or fiction, I am in touch with your feelings. I'm in touch with what they did to you. He didn't just walk in our shoes. He took on our feet. This God has taken the care and the attention to know you intimately, personally, in detail. Not as an outsider looking in saying, yeah, I can see you're in a lot of pain, but as a God who stood in our pain. 2,000 years ago, he bore all of our suffering on a cross. And man, if I were God, I would have tapped out on you a long time ago. I'd say, you guys are too much for me. There's too much drama here, too much pain here, too much wounding here, too much disappointment, too much betrayal, too much greed, too much envy. But he didn't. He chose to step into it and take it all upon himself. And while he was dying on that cross, all he could think of saying to his father was, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. 
Even while he's dying on a cross, he's standing in our space. He's saying, I know what it's like to be one of them. He's speaking on our behalf, translating us to his father, saying, I'm in them. I feel their pain. I feel the confusion. I feel their darkness. I know the disappointments. I know that they're just stuck in all this disillusionment. I know what's going on inside of them, God. I understand them. I'm one of them. It's weird down here. So, Father, I just want you to forgive them because they have no idea what they're doing to me. They have no idea what they're doing to you. They are not connecting the dots. And instead of saying, you're all such a disappointment to me, instead of being on that cross saying, man, you humanoids are just pathetic. I'm starting over. You're no longer my species. Instead, Jesus says, I want you to come to me. I know you've all abandoned me. I know all 11 of my guys are gone. All I see is John and my mom. This is pathetic. And Mary, the other one. My gosh, I, you all have left me and abandoned me. He's actually saying, I want you all to come to me because I understand you in your abandonment. I understand you in your betrayal. I understand you in your pain and your fear and your suffering. I know that you're weary. I know that you're heavy burdened. I know that life is crushing you. I know that you're suffocating on the inside. I know your pain and I want to give you rest. In Matthew 11, he says, I want to give you rest. I want you to take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble of heart. This is God talking to us. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I change everything. And the one thing I know is having a narcissistic view of the world is that it's just so much more than you can bear long term. You're a narcissist and you're miserable because if you spend your whole life trying to pretend you're perfect and you spend all your energy trying to hide your imperfection, you're never going to know what it's like to be fully loved or fully accepted and fully chosen by God because you don't have the courage to let him see you and you definitely don't have the courage to let them see you. I want to ask you to find the courage to admit I need help, to admit I'm not right about everything, to admit I am missing things in my life to admit that weakness is actually strength and vulnerability can actually lead to a much better life to the fullest and to do that you got to admit it to people I want to encourage you connect to people of hope join an impact team you'll be out at the party this week and you will find relationship and you'll be able to say something to somebody that matters Join a hope group. You'll be in a circle of people who don't have it all together, where it's okay to not always be okay. And you'll talk about life. You'll say, I'm vulnerable here. And you'll be like, so embarrassed. Like, if Pastor Nate can do it in front of everybody and admit, I'm a narcissist. Can you just say, I'm stuck. I'm addicted. I'm hurting. I'm alone. I need help. Without creating codependencies. Can we be those people who are willing to connect to people of hope, who are looking for what's right with you, not looking for what's wrong with you, not looking for a reason to judge you, but a reason to lift you and empower you and give you a handle for life, not to fix your problems, to hear your heart and to empathize with you and to connect you to what has helped them so much. And ultimately to connect to Jesus. I ask you to find the courage to admit you need help, and Jesus can help you, and guess what? People can help you. Imagine if the God you knew isn't really the God who is, and imagine if the Jesus you thought you had really isn't the Jesus that you really know. Imagine if people aren't all the same and that you know everything. Imagine what your life could open up to if you choose to not only empathize with others, but to be vulnerable and allow people to empathize with you. Today, if you're out of relationship with Jesus, he is the source of my strength. He's the source of my life. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. But he's not here to shove it down your throat and say, you better. He's not here to shove it down your throat and say, you need to. He's here to say, come on. I'm for you. Reject me, receive me. Doesn't change how I feel about you. Like it, lump it. I love you. I'm giving my best for you. It's hard to resist grace himself. It's hard to resist love himself. 
He's not trying to force a message down your throat saying, do this or else. He's literally saying, I'm available to you. You can have as much of me as you want. Come to me if you're weary. Come to me if you're depressed. Come to me if you are stuck. Come to me if you are lonely. Come to me if everything is swirling and I will give you rest for your soul. He's the God who says, I can help. I can add value. Not just by telling you what you need to do, but by sitting there with you and crying with you and mourning with you and loving you enough to just listen. Let's just listen. I want to encourage you, if you're mad at God, let him have it. Tell him all the reasons he's wrong. I want to encourage you, if you're afraid, just tell him how afraid you are. I want to encourage you, if you have trust issues, just tell him all your issues. He's not looking for perfection from you. He's looking for honesty, vulnerability. He's a real God who wants to help real people where they're really at. And he has the words of life. He has something that can add value to your life. He's not here to take it away from you. He's only here to add value to your life. Whether that's through listening or leading or teaching, it doesn't really matter. He wants you to know him and have a relationship with him. That changes all the other connecting of the dots. If you get this dot right, man, there's so much dot connecting out here. I want to tell you, if you relate to God vertically, horizontally, your life transforms. Jesus is everything that you need. If you want to get into a relationship with him today, he will loose and unleash all the other relationships in your life. If you get this one thing right, all this other stuff starts to connect and pop and dot to dot to dot until you paint a beautiful picture of something better than you could have ever made happen by yourself.